second of three weeks of dealing with just some kind of the questions that are pretty common right now, at least in my interactions with people and kind of in the culture. Um, this is a, a, a number of sermons that we did about four and a half years ago uh, that I just felt like kind of tweaking and resetting uh, for the, these few weeks between our series uh, that ended with the fourfold gospel and then Easter coming up. And uh, just so you're aware, we're going to jump right back into the book of Acts when we get uh, just past Easter. We're just going to continue our series. I think we're uh, about to hit the end of chapter 12 into chapter 13 of Acts. And so we're just going to, uh, for the foreseeable future, we're just going to be in the book of Acts. That, that is our meat and potato teaching diet here, is just to work our way through books of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, and just let the Word of God bear its weight on us and hear what God has to say through His Word. Um, but for today, we're in the second of these three weeks dealing with some questions. And so this week, we're going to deal with the question of God and sex. Uh, so specifically, what I want to tackle today is not so much specific uh, questions about sexuality, but the question that's kind of underneath all the objections to many of the Christian ethics around sexuality, and that's this question, which is, why does God even care what I do sexually? Why does God care about this? Why is God and or even the church concerned with this? Isn't this just a private thing that has nothing to do with spirituality? Uh, and simply put, the answer to that is no. Uh, sexuality is core of who we are. God made us this way. Uh, it wasn't like Satan's idea at the fall to like throw that in as part of the fall. No. God created Adam and Eve good, and he told them, be fruitful and multiply. And so none of us would be here today if it wasn't for that reality, right? So it's core to uh, how God has made us. Um, it's not just a private thing that has nothing to do with spiritual stuff. Uh, and so um, we want to just tackle this today. So let me just make a couple disclaimers right off the top. Uh, if you're feeling awkward right now, so am I. Welcome to the club, okay? <laughs> so let's just put that out there. I don't really want to be talking about this to you. I doubt you want me to be talking about this. But we got to talk about it because it's part of who we are. And my job as your pastor is to guard the doctrine of our church. One of the things that my role entails is guarding uh, I, I guess, us against false doctrines and false ideas. And I can't think of a topic with a much more cultural weight uh, and conversation than that topic right now. Uh, the other disclaimer I want to make is that I try to be as careful as I can about not making an idol out of marriage. I am married. I don't know what it's like to live as a single adult. I have been either dating or married to my wife since high school. But I know that that's not everybody's story, okay? Uh, and so I know a number of you in here are single. Uh, and I just want you to hear me say that you're not like JV. You're not like second-class citizen. Uh, you are a whole person. I am a JV coach right now. You are a whole person, right? You're a whole person. Here's how this kind of plays out sometimes in church without us even meaning to. Mother's Day is coming, right? This is a very uh, sensitive topic in our house. Uh, and so Mother's Day comes along, and I've been in a number of churches that will do things like, let's give out flowers to all the women because all women are like mothers, right? And I understand the heart in that, but what I want to say to that is, you don't have to be a mother to be a woman. Like your humanity, your image of God-bearingness is not based on that. And in the same way, sexuality, although yes, God has boundaries for it, does not mean that you're less human if that's not part of your relationship status right now. Right? Jesus was single. Uh, and he was the most human human that's ever lived. So, single people in the room, we all have equal status in this conversation. You're not uh, below status. But, 
Having said all of that, um, no one is uh, unaffected by the difficulty of talking about this. This is a hard one to talk about. Um, I think it's at least top five sensitive topics right now, and maybe it covers three of the five or whatever. Uh, and so we're no different in the church. And so there's a temptation for us, like with anything else, to compromise one way or the other. Here is how I would just think of the boundaries that God has set in place for our sexuality. Think of a campfire, right? Fire, right? It's it's wildly dangerous, but also provides some amazing things in the boundaries that it's intended to. You put a fire in a fireplace, it'll warm your house, you can cook with it. You build a fire in the middle of your living room, and you're going to burn your house down. So think of something like sexuality in that way. You get it outside the bounds of what God has intended, and it's going to bring destruction. Uh, so... The temptation for us is to compromise one way or the other, to cave in to what feels good or what seems right to us because of the moment in history in which we find ourselves. Uh, but as followers of Jesus, what we always have to do is bring ourselves back to the story that God is telling us about his creation. Now, fairly recently, some of you participated in a Monday night thing we did called uh, The Story Formed Way, in which we talked about the story that God is telling about his creation through his word. And so God is telling a story about his creation, of which we are the pinnacle. Why? Because we are made in his image. And so to ask if we're believing his story or the story of our day and age is a very important question. When I think about this, and we're, we're experimenting today, i got a clicker. So we're going to see what happens with slides. Ooh, it worked. All right? This is a text I'm reminded of from Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. You might know this in another translation. There's a way that appears right to a man, but its way is the end of death, right? It leads to death. And so there is a way of life and a way of thinking and about living into our sexuality that seems right to us. It seems right. Because the cultural moment we find ourselves in is telling us if it feels good, it's right. And so it seems right to us because of the story that the empire, the kingdoms of our day, is telling us about who we are and about our sexuality. And so there's a way that seems right, but in the end, it leads to death. Now, just as a clarification here, when we say it leads to death, what we don't mean, obviously, is that anyone who sees sexuality differently than us is going to be smited by God on the spot. That's not what this text is saying. Instead, what we mean is what it seems to have meant when God told Adam and Eve that on the day when they ate of the fruit, surely they would die. I've mentioned this before. The language works like this. On the day you eat of that fruit, dying, you will die. And so what we mean is that there's a way that seems like it leads to life and flourishing. But actually, it's the pathway of separation from God, which is ultimately the pathway to decay and death, because separation from Jesus, who the Scripture says is our life, doesn't say that he's the pathway to life. It says that he himself is our life. And so if you separate yourself from his way, you are separating yourself from the life from life itself, and it's the pathway to death and decay uh, over the long term. And so this is why this conversation matters. I think it's one of the most important issues uh, in our world. Honestly, it's probably the single topic that we as a church stand opposed or uh, apart from our culture the most. Now, we don't stand in condemnation, but we do stand with prophetic witness. 
This is why within the church, within God's people, it is so important that we get this right so that we can be a witness of a different kind of way of living that is beautiful and inviting. But we're not here to condemn anybody. So what I want to do today is just talk about two stories. We're saying there's two different stories, and that's because Jesus taught this way. He told stories. He's a brilliant storyteller and teacher, and the way he told these stories subverted the norms of his day, and this is why he was killed. And so we have an example of this that's related to sexuality and relationships, particularly marriage and divorce. Uh, but let me read that and talk through a couple of points. This is from Matthew 19. If you want to open your Bible, you can to Matthew chapter 19, uh, but I have it here on the screen. I'm going to read 1 through 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, so he was just doing some teaching, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Sorry. I told you it was like an experiment. Come on. All right, Julia, can you follow the slides? I'm sorry. It's not working. I don't want to be distracted the whole time. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Go ahead. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You might recognize that last line there if you've ever been to a wedding. Uh, that's a classic line that we will say uh, at weddings. And so, what's happened here is that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of God. Okay, He's teaching about the kingdom of God, which is a way of talking about the overall culture of what things will be like when we live with God under his rule, that his kingdom manifests itself in our lives. It's a, uh, in a non-sort of money way of, of speaking, this is the economy of God's king, of life, right? This is God's kingdom. That's what it means. So Jesus went teaching about the kingdom of heaven, which is already ruffling the feathers of those in power in his day, and now we come to this scene. So first, I want you to notice this. The Pharisees come to him and they ask him one of those questions where they actually aren't looking for an answer, but it's instead a test to see if you align with the question asker's view. This is super popular right now, right? We do this all the time. So true about us. I can't tell you how many times I have either heard someone get asked or I've been asked or I've seen it on uh, any number of social media sites, right? Somebody asks a question. They're not asking the question in good faith. They're asking the question to try to trap you. And that's what's happening here. Their question, uh, they're trying to corner him, and Jesus' response is pretty awesome. Uh, notice in their question the phrase, for any reason. Now, why would, they, why would they ask that? Well, there was a particular issue that was happening in their day where a man could divorce his wife for, just like it says, for any reason. Okay, And if that sounds ridiculous to you and terrible, it was. Now, Jesus' response to them gives us a glimpse into the story that Jesus believes and wants his hearers to believe about the, the nature of reality. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. There, there is no way we could do justice to, to any one of the dozens of issues surrounding uh, sexuality in our culture. So what I want to do is just walk through this text as kind of a summary of what our culture is telling us about sexuality. 
and sort of juxtapose that and invite you to consider that there's another story, that there's a greater story, the story of the kingdom of God. And I want to just invite you to contemplate it and, and seek the, the help of the Holy Spirit in determining what story is going to have authority over your life. Is it going to be the story of the, the kingdoms of this world, or is it going to be the story of the kingdom of heaven and his king, Jesus? So I just want to, we're just going to lay these two stories out in front and let the Holy Spirit do his work. Uh, so the first question uh, that Jesus asks has to do um, with, with this idea of authority, right? So the story of our culture is that you are the center of your world. Uh, and any and every authority that's telling you what to do is bad. It's an oppressor, right? That's the language that gets used right now. In almost every movie and every show that you watch, you are being told to follow your your dreams, your heart, fill in the blank. And that stands opposed to what the scriptures say. The scriptures say, die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Your heart is wicked beyond all belief. Who can know it? Why would you follow that? Right? That's, what, that's the juxtaposition. It, but the story of our day, the, the air we breathe, the water we fish swim in, is the, the, the idea that you're the center of everything. No one has any right to tell me what to do, and especially not with anything to do with my body, right? And certainly, there is a place for that. I should follow my heart, the culture tells us. And so if that means, for, for our discussion this morning, that I want to sleep with this person, then that's what I should do, because there's no outside authority over my life that can tell me what to do. And in fact, anyone or anything who would claim to have authority over me is oppressive and they should be banished from our society. Now, this isn't just people who are outside of the church who believe this story. We are being discipled in this every day as even Christians. All of us are being trained this way. Every show, every movie, every song, every advertisement is telling you that no one can tell you anything, particularly about your sexuality, and that you should just follow your heart. So sleep with whoever you want, because after all, the point of life is to be happy. And so whatever that means, as long as no one is telling you what to do, and you're not hurting anybody, and you have consent, and you're happy, then go for it. That, that's what we're being told. But, but look at what Jesus answered. This is the first slide, Julia. Have you not read, he says. Have you not read, he says to the Pharisees. This is the kind of uh, little dig that ends up getting these Pharisees to hate Jesus. He, he's being a little sarcastic here. Don't you guys know? Have you not read this? So what's he doing here? He's appealing to the reality that there is an authority outside of their own traditions or, or for our sake, there's an authority that lies outside of the culturally accepted norms of the day. And for our sake this morning, we're talking about the norms around sexuality of our day. And so there's an authority that in our case has come down to us in written form in what we call the Bible, which we argued last week was trustworthy, remember? Uh, and so Jesus is teaching us here that there is an authoritative word from God about the reality of the universe. Has this word been misinterpreted and misused and used to abuse people? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it has. We need to own that as the church, right? Yes. But that's a different category of conversation. Here, all Jesus is setting up with 
uh, is his response to these Pharisees' test question is that the answer they, that they want doesn't come from them. Right? That's what he's setting up. Oh, you want an answer to this question? Well, let me go to an authority that's outside of you. It comes from this revelation that's been written down for them and also for us, which for them they should have known. Um, and this is the second part of the story. Uh, when you believe that, essentially, um, we are just primates with luck and time on our side. That means connected to this idea of authority outside of us, if that's the case, then there really isn't any purpose to us. So just make your own purpose. And so what that means is we can do whatever we want. This is the story of secularism. This is the story of secularism. That there is this, this idol of progress, which is being shattered all over the place. But here's what's fascinating. More and more people, and I think if as God's people we can set ourselves up for this, we can just be waiting with open arms for the people that are running into the end of secularism's ideas and going, there's nothing there. More and more people are discovering that secularism and all of its connected beliefs can't answer three simple questions. This is a quote from an article called The Limits of Secularism and the Search for Meaning by British Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He says this, If you're ill, you don't need a priest. You, you go to a doctor. If you feel guilty, you don't have to confess. You can go to a psychotherapist instead. If you still need salvation, you can go to today's cathedrals, the shopping center, or online shopping now, or as one American writer calls them, weapons of mass consumption. Religion seems superfluous and redundant. Why then does it survive? My answer is simple. Religion survives because it answers three questions that every reflective person must ask. Who am I? Why am I here? How then shall I live? We will always ask those three questions. So if we just came from some process devoid of a creator, how can we possibly have an answer to these questions? If we are, all we are is a species of just kind of advanced animals, there's no meaning beyond survival. It's just tooth and claw, survival of the fittest, and what meaning does that bring to life? And so in Jesus' story, there is a creator, because his next thing that he says is, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning? This is the next line. And so Jesus' story says there's a creator who created you and everything else in the world, and this means that we do have answers to the question about meaning. Who am I? I am a person created in the image of God. I have the imago Dei inside of me. I did not create myself which means I can walk in the freedom of knowing that I don't need to toil to figure out who I am. I'm a creation of God, my Father, and because of that, I have inherent value and worth that no one should be able to take from me or oppress me uh, under. So a quick example. It was actually Christian women who started what we call feminism, right? And there's a lot to say about first wave, second wave, but it was Christian women who did that. Why? Because they saw that men and women, both created in the image of God, have inherent worth and value, but based on anything other than the fact that God is, based on nothing other than the fact that God is their creator. And so the, uh, the idea of identity is one of the places where we differ most often from our current culture. Secular culture wants to say that your identity is found in what you do, in particular with sexuality, right? 
and what you're attracted to and what you do with that. So we identify as straight, gay, trans, bi, gender fluid, etc. And if you know someone who identifies as one of those, I'm begging us as Christians to hold to our own doctrine and to treat that person as what you believe them to be, a person created in the image of God who is inherently valuable and worthwhile of honor and dignity. That's your doctrine, Christian, so hold it if you know someone who's in that category. We believe that people are valuable because they're created by God. So no matter what they do or don't do with their bodies, no matter how we might disagree with their actions, we still believe that they have a value that can not be taken from them. There are no second-class people. That does not exist in the Christian worldview. But sadly, we, the Christian church, doesn't always treat people in a way that would lead them to believe that this is actually our doctrine. Uh, and I hope we are a people that would change that perception. It doesn't mean that we don't hold to our doctrine. It just means we hold definitely to that part of our doctrine. As an extension of the first point we saw about authority, we see that even gender is being seen as nothing more than a social construct in our day and age, right? Again, this is all connected back to the premise that any, to the premise that any and all authority would, that would tell me anything about myself that's contrary to how I'm experiencing the world is oppressive and must not be trusted. Again, this is every TV show and movie. I notice it a lot now because I have an almost eight-year-old and it's in their shows as well. The secular worldview, because it cannot make space for there to be an objective moral authority, cannot, therefore, accept any view that says there are specific limitations and roles or responsibilities for anybody. So, gender is viewed as simply a social construct that we are free to do away with in our pursuit of self-actualization. Personal satisfaction and happiness are the ultimate utopian hope and so anything that stands in the way of that, including any kind of expectations regarding sexuality or gender, must be put away. But it's interesting, because I am seeing more and more conversations about people dealing with the emptiness of that. There's actually just a really great article about how empty, uh, the, that if you think that the only thing that needs to happen for sexual uh, relationship is consent, People are finding that that is just empty and that there's nothing there and that something more is needed. So Jesus goes on and he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So this creator had a purpose in mind when he created us as human and he did it in a very specific way. Now Jesus is quoting here from Genesis where we read that in his image God made them male and female, and then God says, and he saw that it was good. So your felt experience does not change that goodness and that blessing from God. The response of the church to those who struggle with their biological gender is never supposed to be rejection but instead a posture that says, we will walk with you in this because no matter what you believe about yourself, we believe about you that God has made you and that he made you good. That you are not second class. And so wrapped up in the purpose in making us male and female is a few very specific and we would argue very beautiful limitations. 
And limitations are like anathema to our culture, right? There are some very beautiful limitations, roles, and responsibilities because we are made male and female. And so limitations are just the opposite of what the secular worldview wants, but as God's people, we see beauty in our limitations. We see beauty in our limitations. Most basically, we are limited because we are creatures and we are not the creator. We are all limited in that all of us in this room are going to die. We will. And it is good for us to think about it and to number our days. We are limited because we are creatures and not the creator. But this is freedom if you will see it. Why? You don't have to be God. You're not called to be God. You're not supposed to be anybody's savior. You are a creature. More specifically, as a male, I will never, ever have the responsibility of bearing another life inside of my body. I just never will. That is a limitation. <laughs> but there is a beauty in that because this means that in order to see the beauty of new life, what must I do? I must partner in covenant relationship with another image bearer in order to experience the beauty and the blessing of children. That's what that limitation means, and it's beautiful. Another thing that our culture says is that children are a nuisance and they're not a blessing and family doesn't matter. But look at what Jesus says. A man shall leave his father and mother. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning... Go back one for me. Created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now let's stop right there. This is another part of this conversation around sexuality in our secular age. We have disconnected sexuality from childbearing. Even as a constant running joke on social media and on TV, children are seen as a nuisance, right? And I mean, some of that stuff is funny. I saw a meme the other day that was like, hey, dads, I got a life hack for you. Just kidding, there's no life hacks. Kids are hard. Right? And that's true. And so children are seen as a nuisance all over the place in our culture. They're seen as a block to the real meaning of life, which is, again, self-actualization. How many times I have spoken to younger adults who are uh, having kids and they say something like, man, I wish we could live life or I wish we could do this, but we have kids. As if that's a block to real life. Children are a limitation, and limitations are the antithesis of finding our true self. It was not until very recently, very recently, that sex was not connected to the very real possibility of childbearing. Now, our culture would tell us that this is a victory for freedom, because now we get to plan when we have kids and when we don't have kids, but... Uh, and we still get to do what we want sexually, right? So we can be free from the bondage of the possibility of children and experience whatever we want, whenever we want, with whoever we want. We're free. But what if we think that freedom, what if what we think of as freedom is actually bondage? What if our culture has it backwards? What if we're actually enslaving ourselves to ourselves? And we're eating ourselves from the inside out? What if us being able to experience the pleasure of sex without the supposed limitation of children is actually robbing us of one of the most beautiful blessings that a human can experience? We're giving ourselves away for the sake of another. 
That, that's one of the most beautiful experiences you can have as a human. Give yourself away for the sake of another. What, what if all of this freedom that we supposedly have is robbing us of the experience of love as God envisioned it as part of a family? And again, single people, you can be part of a family. You can give yourself away for the sake of another. All right, the last point for today. Sex is just fun for, con for consenting adults, right? That, that's a view of our culture. But here's what Jesus says. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. And then he goes on and what does he say next? And, the two, and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So our culture says sex is simply fun for adults. It's nothing more than a biological release, and it doesn't necessarily matter what kind of relational container it happens in as long as both adults consent. That is the only requirement. And to be clear, we in the church would totally agree here. We would lock arms with, non, with non-Christian figures when it comes to seeing the abolition of sexual abuse in any shape or form. We agree that sex should never happen when people are not consenting. We agree with that. This is one area where Christians and non-Christians can agree upon the heinousness of a crime or of a sin. But we must also say here that there have been way, way, way too many cases of abuse of sex from those in positions of power in the church. We have to say that. And quite frankly, this is why we have largely lost our voice in the culture when it comes to sex. Between scandals of abuse, and hear me say this, no-fault divorce, we have absolutely lost our witness when it comes to this conversation. So if you have been the victim of sexual abuse, I want you to know that we grieve with you, and I also want you to know that Jesus knows what abuse is like. That he was publicly abused at his crucifixion, he was stripped naked in front of crowds and put on display with no semblance of dignity. His human sexuality was used as a tool of disgrace and shame and power over him. So he is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Other than this one point of consenting adults, I don't know of any other limitation that our cultural moment would say is acceptable and why is this? It's because what we are also saying is that sex in our culture is nothing more than a physical act. It's just fun for consenting adults and that's it. If we are just evolved animals, sex is just an animalistic biological act. But I defy you to find me anyone who deep down in their heart of hearts actually thinks that that's true. That is a lie. Sex is way more than physical relationship. Way more. So our sexuality has the power and purpose to create life and to make families to belong in and also to join two people together at a soul level like nothing else can. Sex is not simply the... Uh, two bodies coming together, but it's also the intertwining of two souls into this idea uh, of what's contained in a Hebrew word called echad. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says that anyone 
who uses sex in a way that is outside of the good and beautiful limitations that God has placed around it, sins against their own body. We are again faced with the reality that there are limitations to our human experience. There are limitations everywhere. You can't fly. Right? You can't swim underwater as long as you want to. You just can't. And there are limitations to your sexuality. God has a vision for your sexuality. As the creator who loves you, who made you with a purpose, God has given us a good gift in sex. It is a good gift. It's his idea. But he, in his love and his care for us, has also given us the only relational container that is able to contain the power of human sexual relationships, and that is the container of one man and one woman in a monogamous, lifelong covenant relationship with one another. Yes, we are saying that traditional marriage is what God is calling us to, and it's a vision of beauty and limitation. God's loving vision for human sexuality is that it would happen in the form of husband and wife. There is no other relational situation in which two people can have any kind of sexual relationship, hear me, and also have God's blessing. You can't. That, you just don't get to do that with God. Now, let me say two things to close. One, I know that there's no su- there, there is so much nuance to each situation. Every person is a whole person. And you have fears and hopes and dreams and make mistakes and do things you wish you didn't do. I know that there's a lot of complex situations that we face. Some of us are single and lonely. Some of us are afraid of marriage because of some baggage we might carry. Some of us might be dealing with same-sex attraction. Wherever you are on that, some of us might be living together and sleeping together and not be married. Wherever you are on that spectrum, I want you to hear me say this very clearly. You are welcome here. Come here. Be part of this family. Everything I just said for the last 30 minutes is true, but it's also true that you're welcome here. So if you interpret what I said as, I am kicked out, I am not saying you're kicked out. I'm saying come closer. Get in here. If you read the Gospels, you will read multiple stories of Jesus encountering someone who is walking in their sexuality in a way that is outside of what God envisions for the flourishing of humanity. And not once do we see Jesus hate somebody, condemn somebody, shame somebody. What he does is offer you and invite you into a new way to be human. He offers you the gift of dying to yourself and to your ways and to coming to him and finding life. That's what Jesus offers you. The second thing, I know that the question of does sexual sin send me, does it send my loved one to hell, is probably lingering in some of our minds right now. It's lingering in my mind right now for some people in my family. Right? But this is the wrong question. It's the wrong question. The issue of heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal death, it's not about what specific sins you have committed. It's not. There aren't degrees of sin in terms of where your eternity will be. What matters is what you do with Jesus. Do you reject him? Do you continue to say, I will do what I want. I will go in a way that seems right to me. That's the question. God has revealed through his word, even through his creation, 
the way that he made the universe to work so that humans would flourish and walk with him. And so if you want to reject that, God will let you. He will not force you to love him. So it isn't the act of sexual sin that would send someone to hell. It's the rejection of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that will cause a person to end up in hell. If you want to pursue death, you will find it. You can reject what God has said through his word as the authority in your life, but that doesn't make it untrue. That does not make it untrue. You can reject what God has said about sexuality, but that doesn't make it untrue. You can reject the fact that if you trust in Jesus by faith, there is grace upon grace upon grace for you. There is so much grace that it looks like it's cheap grace, but it's not cheap because it costs the blood of Jesus. You can reject that reality, that if you trust in Jesus, there is grace for you, but that doesn't make it untrue either. Wherever you are, when it comes to your sexuality, the invitation is the same. Come to Jesus. Move towards Jesus. Take one step of faith towards Jesus. For some of us in this room, it might mean our internet needs to change. Our internet habits need to change. For some of us in this room, it might mean that we need to break up with somebody. For some of us in this room, it might mean that we need to move out to follow Jesus. Take a step towards Jesus and find grace upon grace. Move towards God. Move towards God in faith. Moving towards God in faith is the path that leads to eternal life. And it's the invitation for you, no matter who you are and no matter what you have done. I want you to hear me say that. No matter what you have done or what you're doing right now, come to Jesus. That's the message. He, he offers life. He offers you his own life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the space to have this conversation. Lord, I pray that your word today, that your story, have we not heard that you created us male and female, that it's a blessing to be what you have created us to be. Lord, for those that struggle with this area of ourselves, I just I ask for grace and peace and, and open conversations. Lord, for, for those of us who are coming at this from a much more conservative purity culture lens, would you give us the ability to get rid of whatever may, judgment may be in our hearts? Lord, we confess, if that's our story, that maybe we have shamed people and we need to repent. Lord, if we're coming from the place of living with a little bit more license sexually, Lord, would, would we come to you and realize we're not second class, we're not dirty, we're not used up, but we are whole people who are beautiful and created in your image, who you want. You want us, Lord, and that's unbelievable to us. We thank you that we get to come around this table no matter what our background is, and see that what binds us together is the body and the blood of Jesus who, who sacrificed himself for us so that we can come and have fellowship with you, Father. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to empower us, to fill us. And Lord, if we're, Holy Spirit, if we're feeling from you the call to do something with this word today, that we would be bold and do it. If it costs us, we would do it anyway. That following you costs us something. So, Lord, would you make us bold in that? We pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.